Teenagers. I'm James Schoen. And I'm James Certin. Conversation, expertise and advice on the world and well-being of our teenagers. Hello and, and welcome to Talking Teenagers. Today we are very lucky. We are with Lewis Moody, the England rugby legend. And, That's very uh, generous already, James. Thank you. There is uh, there is lots that we can learn from Lewis, and uh, as as parents and parents of teenagers and teachers, we would love to hear about some of the key sort of lessons you've learnt on your journey. I think I've I've spent my whole life learning, you know, because we were talking moments ago about setbacks and and shortcomings and failings, and and I've had so many of them in my life that I've I've constantly been learning, and it's what's helped grow me as, as an individual but definitely as a young man so you know I was an only child mum and dad worked incredibly hard to, to put me into private education because I think dad felt coming from a family that that had never been to college or university or anything like that wanted to afford me those opportunities. So at what age did, did rugby emerge? I mean you, you were very good at cricket and athletics as well weren't you? I just loved all sport, James. I loved being active. As a as a five year old, I, I went down to my first rugby session and I was I had my eyes open to physical sport and tackling and I loved it from the first moment I did it. And I think as I went through my my sporting career, rugby became more important because as the sort of frustrations of being a teenager a child, you know, the elements that, that we all deal with, right? You know, bullying, you know, I certainly felt bullied at a time. You know, I was never the most intelligent kid, you know, academically. I was, you know, um, I was bright, but I wasn't intelligent. And and that would be used as a mechanism to pick on me um, because I was good at sport as well. And, you know, people get, your peers get jealous of, of success on the sports field. So rugby in particular was a real outlet for me. You know, when I was dealing with, I had I had a degree of mental health issues as a child around depression and suicidal thoughts and tendencies and things like that. And, and rugby gave me a real focus and an outlet to keep to keep moving forward. And okay, need to be good for the game of the weekend, even to a point where it's like okay, I need to be there for my teammates, need to be there. For my family, I actually got quite emotional about this. All of a sudden, you know, it's not. I've I've spoken about it before, but but maybe it's just um, a reflection on how important sport was for me. Yeah, so it sounds like a, a real kind of release from some of the things that you're going through. There's a lot to unpack from what you've just I said. I know, I know, I know. And, and I'm fascinated. Sorry, you know, a guy who became captain of rugby for England was you know suffered bullying at school, the mental health issues that you talked about. There's a whole lot to unpack about being an yeah. only child, actually, but. Was rugby the kind of thing that kept you, stabilised you, your 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 assurance in your sporting ability? Was that the anchor? Yeah, it was the only time I felt truly confident and and uh, respected, I suppose, that I had an aptitude for something and that people needed me and that I was crucial to the team. And I knew I was really good at rugby player as well. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely a way of, of taking any of my frustrations out, you know, on the opposition. You know, really just unleashing. Poor them. <laughs> yeah, unleashing physically. Uh, my, you know, it's embodying my my inner struggle in a physical expression. You know. So the mad dog was expressing himself as a fifteen-year-old. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and it and it really was. Um, you know, sport in particular, rugby was was really helpful for me. Um, you know, from a peer point of view, from you know, there were there were times that I I I, I 
I struggled with with the rugby as well. The confidence issue. I was a shy kid. So I love socialising, but I I felt awkward at times. You know, like I'm sure we all do. But again, you know, rugby gave me that that opportunity. But then, as you do well in sport, you have to progress to new levels, right? So you go to new teams where you don't know people. So for someone that's a little bit socially awkward and shy, you're then very anxious. You remember turning up to sessions as a as a kid for England, not knowing anyone and being so nervous because I wasn't a gregarious, outgoing character. And they're always the guys that are captain, right? And they're always the guys that are the cool kid. And I definitely wasn't a cool kid at school. Yeah, well, I certainly never felt like one. You know, I felt like an in-betweener. You know, I wasn't the nerd. I wasn't the cool kid. I was the in-betweener. And, uh, you know, so going to those environments made me very anxious and dealing with those things is difficult as a kid, isn't it? But ultimately, so I can see why now my own children struggle with, you know, so my son Dylan and Ethan are both great sportsmen. They love their sport. Dylan's doing well with his football, and but he gets very anxious when he goes to new you know, new environments, and I totally get it. I do totally get it, but sometimes we forget, I think, as parents, don't we? Like, well, you know, what are you, what are you nervous about? It's just go, you're doing what you love, mate. You're going to do sport. Yeah, yeah, but, and then I, I really try and reflect and give them the time to share it without, you know, because I get it wrong all the time, you know, because I forget as well, having it, even though I've been through it, so... I can't remember what you asked me now, James. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so... Right. Well, that's, that's quite important, isn't it? That parents, you can't get it right all the time. You know, one of the messages to parents is, you know, there is no such thing as a perfect parent. And, you know, talking about a journey, uh, and it's interesting talking to you, obviously, with the, the successes, but actually along the way, there's difficulty. And actually, the same journey is true of parents when getting it right and wrong. And actually, we talk so much about allowing our kids to make mistakes, but we are not nearly so good at allowing ourselves to make mistakes, you know, in that sense. Certainly my son last night went to a hockey practice and he was very anxious about going and didn't think he'd enjoy it because he didn't know anyone who was going to be there. And that is a, we often forget that sort of anxiety that they feel is a social anxiety. And, um, you know, sometimes we can be so quick to sort of talk them out of it rather than just allowing them to express it, which is often a better way, isn't it? Yeah, don't be so silly or what you're yeah. talking about. That's ridiculous. Rather yeah. than that might be, that's hard, isn't it, going yeah. into a place you don't really know anyone? Of course it is, yeah. And actually, I think one of the things I've really tried as a as a parent, it's to make them aware that we all make mistakes and that to try and remember. I think emotionally sometimes, I'm the type of person that if confronted reacts quite emotionally rather than logically so with my kids you know I sometimes react emotionally rather than logically and and actually it's been really important for me in my head to make the conscious effort to to say to them when I've been wrong that I'm wrong and that put my hand up and go mate I'm really sorry about that that was that was not good parenting I got angry for no reason I got cross for the wrong reasons because I was dealing with something else that distracted me and then the interruption made me react differently and and I'm apologize for that and I hope I'm helping them understand that adults you know make mistakes as often as as kids if not more often I think actually yeah such a valuable lesson and I think for young people learning how to you know recover from setbacks is such a key part of of learning isn't it such a valuable part of learning 100 percent. i mean i can't explain how many times during my playing career the the setbacks that i faced helped me now or overcome something completely outside of sport so you know i had multiple injuries during my playing career so i had i I think 14 operations in 16 years not including the sort of the minor niggles and strains and stuff like that and stitches and what have you 
And it was only when I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 2005, just prior to going on on my first and only Lions tour, was that I realised how important going through those injuries had been for helping me overcome this battle. So um, because I just saw it as a, as a hurdle, not a barrier. I n- at no stage did I think, oh, OK, I'm not going to overcome this. This is going to stop me playing sport because I'd never thought that with any of the injuries I had. I just knew that there was a, OK, I'll diagnose. We go to the doctors, get a diagnosis, get a rehab plan. And then if it takes four months, it takes four months. We just there's the target. We work towards it gradually and, and I'll be back playing. If it takes a year, it takes a year. But I know the plan and and, and we'll get there and. It never. I never saw a wall or a brick wall or a barrier to to me progressing. It was just a hurdle, and you know that that did take time, but it really helped me. That mindset of just cracking on and and understanding what process I needed to put in place to reach my my goal. Experience teaches you that, doesn't it? I wonder with sometimes with our own teenagers because we've got that experience we we can be a bit quick to sort of say this is a setback but don't worry you know it's all going to be good without really allowing them to feel the emotion of that setback that's a fine balance have you had any kind of insights on that you know the more we try things the more we fail if that's the right word or, or the more we we learn about ourselves okay that's a challenge one of the things my I think my son struggles with the most is and I did as well actually is not being able to do something instantly you know so if someone takes you skiing if I can't do it straight away then ask what what is the point right why and why am I doing this it's pointless I should be it should be easy or like teaching the kids how to how to ride a bike you know I mean that's got to be the the greatest you know lesson for, for us all you know getting on the bike I remember Ethan my youngest he would go mental when he fell off literally because he could see his brother do it he could see me do it he couldn't understand we can do it he would have the biggest wobbler and just not go back on the bike again and and i don't recall ever saying you know don't worry mate you'll get the hang of it or you know you've just got to you just got to keep trying you just got to i don't recall what i said but ultimately he tried again and he tried again and he got to a point where he had success with it and you know, through those experiences, we learn. I, mean, I think you're right. As, as if there's anything I've learned, it's just being there to support through those and offering rather than a rather than advice. Because I don't think our kids ever want to listen to our advice as parents, do they? They just want to figure out how to do it themselves. Is I think just to be there to support them sometimes and say, "Okay, mate, I understand that's really frustrating for you." Um, you know, may, maybe try again. Yeah, my son always says, oh, you don't have to make everything into a life lesson, you know. It's kind <laughs> yeah, of like, yeah. I think, yeah, actually, you're right. And yeah. um, I think partly what you said is just make sure they keep going, yeah. you know, when they fail. It's actually, it's like, to use your analogy, get back on the bike, you know, and actually just helping them to do that rather than to go, oh, I can't do this. Yeah. I love um, that line of it being a hurdle as opposed to a brick wall. Yeah. A setback is a hurdle that we get over and the risen to brick wall. It's quite difficult with teenagers because they are evolving as as human beings and actually how they, some people kind of maintain the same approach all the way through from 13 to 18. And, you know, I've seen boys that I teach and there's just no nuance to it at all. They're exactly the same. Whereas others, they're so permeable at that stage and so fluid. 
But there comes a point when they sort of self-identify, don't they, in terms of this is the kind of person I am. Did you have any of that journey or did you think like as a teenager, you were, it sounds like you had quite a journey in no, terms yeah, of I that. Had, I had a long journey. I think I always thought I was I was quite often wrong because I was looking at different people and, you know, my, my take on it would have been very different to others. You know, I, I doubted myself quite a lot, I think, as a teenager or felt I had to fit a, a specific mould, you know, that the, te- the teachers uh, at the time would would sort of lean you towards a type of individual that was doing really well, you know, so as the example of how you should do things. And, okay, I would look at that person and go, okay, well, what can I take from him? And But I, I essentially didn't understand how to learn, really, was my, my, my base struggle, was that I didn't, no one taught me how to learn properly. You know, I just, no one sat down with me and said, right, how can we figure out what really works for you? And there's not just one way, okay, this guy does it like this, and that's the model I'm giving you, but... But that's not the only way. No one ever said that. It's like, oh my God, okay, so I've got to do what he's doing. He writes, sits down, he reads books all day and he just computes the information. It's like, okay, I'm going to sit down and read. Sit down and read. <laughs> okay, get questions on it. Nothing. There's like <laughs> nothing has stayed in my head. So, okay, what are the different mechanisms? It's like, and only when I see the kids now and the brilliant teaching that they get at, at school, it's like, okay, there's so many different ways to learn and 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 be taught and for people to share information and 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 I think you know I'd, I'd thrive much better as a student in the current world because I just I, did, I didn't understand how to how to I didn't understand myself well enough and, and do you I think part of that was being an only child just interested you know because you didn't have yeah. sort of siblings to rub alongside and see the differences you know close up like that or quite possibly actually mm. yeah quite possibly I think they probably uh, you know you, you didn't have a uh, a differing opinion to say to show you a different way of doing something so I would just continue doing the same thing (laughs) unsuccessfully. Did you have have any sort of real role models or somebody who really got behind you during those sort of really unsettled teenage years? Was there a a rugby coach or a tutor or a a teacher of any sort that just sort of could see the gold and the potential in you? For me, it it was always generally coaches, you know, who happened to be teachers as well at the school. So uh, Andy Wilson home, Brian Welford, and and finally a chap called Ian Dosser-Smith, who was Leicester Tigers player and became our first team coach at at school. And just the way he was, you know, the the standards that he demanded of us and me, the the coaches that I had through school were, were all really positive. I was just I was passionate about playing for the team and about all of us enjoying the experience and doing well. And they they would get they would get the best out of me. They made me they made me realise that sport was was more than just the result. Do you, uh, it's just striking. You you did say a lot about talking about team. You've mentioned it several times. I wonder whether your own sense of being slightly you know not part of the team or you know not part of the kind of the traditional schoolboy as it were. Did that help you? Do you think as a captain because you had a greater empathy for people who felt outsiders or drawing them in do you think that that was because a lot of what actually we experience ourselves makes us better leaders doesn't it I hope so I I hope that people would say that I was I was empathetic as a as a leader you know I was I was enthusiastic I wanted everyone to enjoy the the journey I wanted us to be successful together you know with success in the sense that yes okay we wanted to to win the games we wanted to have the experience of, of enjoying the game, you know, so actually feeling like you're playing well, doing something for each other, looking after your mates. And then afterwards, there's the social experience of playing as well, you know, especially when you're in the first team at school, you know, going out together, you know, having a drink together, bringing the, 
you know, the, the guys that are in the year below with you, making them feel a part of something special. It was really cool. I loved that time at school when, you know, we were playing rugby because we felt, you felt like a little family. I think that's what, um, what sort of sport gave me. It was like, yeah, a, it's, it's that, it's the, the importance of belonging and yes. that we feel like we belong. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's an essential thing for young people, whether it's in sport or in their youth clubs, their families, their dormitories, if they're in a boarding school, that they belong. Um, a really essential thing. That's such a good word. I love that. Yeah. But the word, the word in itself makes me understand why I love sport and also why I understand when I see the kids. Because I always think, you know, I don't like to think there's ever a bad kid or student or pupil or anything like that. I just think we're all products of our environments and, and we, we have learnt behaviours which, you know, sometimes come across in a manner which you don't always want it to. And so I always like to think the best of any of the any of our kids and students out there. And invariably when we do, you see such you see such brilliance. You see you see people that want to shine. You give them the opportunity and they they take it. And, you know, seeing the supportive nature of the the students on our on our rugby programs you know i remember sitting in a in a in a session which was actually led by one of the england 18s coaches at the time and it was actually a session for the coaches in the local area and our students just were the sort of the facilitators of so the coaches could observe other coaches and we sat down afterwards and it was about asking questions of the england coach and actually the other what tended to happen was the coaches were asking the students why was the session enjoyable? What is it that you do that you enjoy? And, and the responses that came back were just remarkable to the point that one of the lads stood up and said, so he'd been dealing for some time with depression and clinical depression diagnosed whilst he was at school in year 12. And, uh, and he just stood up in front of these adults and all of his peers and said, look, this is the... This is the first time I've I've spoken about this in front of people, but I just wanted to say that that rugby in this environment has given me the ability to deal with something that I was really struggling with, and my depression has this environment has given me friends and peers that I've felt have supported me through something I otherwise may not have got through, and I was like, that's that sense of family you talked about and the sense of belonging. That actually, when you get make a place that's safe. Wherever that is, it might be. Not many people think of the rugby field as being a safe yeah, place, true, yeah, but yeah. actually, the environment, the team ethic, yeah. is a safe environment, isn't it? And that that creation of places, wherever they might be, for whatever different type of person, is allow, allowing them to belong, allowing them to feel like they're part of family, and therefore they can open up. But people who are suffering from sort of depression or you know low self esteem or whatever it might be. Unless you find those places of comfort and of safety, it's really hard for them to just say what they're going through, isn't yeah. it? And it's the challenge, isn't it, of peop allowing people to be themselves. So if you're not really a rugby player and you're trying to be a rugby player, that's not ideal. But if you're at your happiest cooking a meal or yeah. caring for a, a pet or something, well, do that. And uh, when you're doing that thing... It's easy to be yourself, isn't it? That's a really, yeah. That's a really good. That's a really good. But I suppose it's like for me now, you know, in life or for any of us, is is if we enjoy what we do, ultimately we're going to be a better person. I think, aren't we? You know. There was one other story you were saying. We talked about identity and belonging uh, when you joined Leicester, yeah. and there were two other players in your positions, and how different they were, and how that allowed you to just 
talk about being yourself a bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you, we spoke about Neil back. So when I first came to Leicester as, a, as an 18-year-old into this man's environment, the best player in his position in the country at the time was a guy called Neil Back. Played for England, played many times for Leicester. I'd watched him as a kid at school. Um, I'd been to Welford Road, sat in the stands. You when, know, when you watched him, him did you, was he a hero? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, anyone that wore an England or a Tigers shirt was a hero of mine. And and all of a sudden I was thrown into this environment where I was surrounded by my heroes. So it was pretty daunting. I mean, it was very daunting. I mean, as a shy, as we've talked about being shy and anxious already, right? I was like, oh my God, how do I deal with this? I'd like, first couple of years where I was really, you know, uncomfortable being in training. But I loved it because I, it was the thing I loved the most, right? And I had a proper, I was good at it. I knew I was good at it. I was aligned to Neil Back essentially because he was the same position as me and he was the best in the world at the time. And the coach was like, look, I'm going to put you in a room with Neil Back. You know, we need to watch Neil Back. This is, he is just the best at what he does. So you need to emulate him. I'm like, okay, that makes total sense. And, you know, go. So first time I share a room with Backy, I mean, not particularly sociable. And when I say I'm shy, I, I, I'm very sociable. I like being with people, I like interacting with people, but I will, I will fill an awkward silence, you know, whereas Backy, no, no qualms about not speaking for like hours on end, like quite happy, you know, stacking his shirts, wearing his food in the corner. And, and he was, you know, he was focused, so focused on, the detail about him being the best he possibly could be. And that really worked for him. And it got the absolute best out of him. And okay, and I'm like, oh my God, right, okay, so I've got to be like Neil Back as an 18 year old. Right? So, you know, I'm trying to fold my clothes better in the cupboard. It's still, <laughs> it's still not working. Um, you know, they're not in color order. They're still hanging, half hanging off. I don't even know how to fold a t shirt. <laughs> uh, you know, and all this different stuff. And then, you know, I'm really struggling with it, quite frankly, because it's, it, it's emphasizing that I'm not good at what he's doing so it's just reinstilling the fact that oh my god okay, I'm not good enough I can't I, I'm never going to be like Neil Back because I can't reach these sorts of standards about a year later the club um, brought in a guy called Josh Cromfeld now Josh was uh, was an all black played for New Zealand uh, at the same time that Neil Back was playing for England and they were at the time in their pomp the two best open side flankers in the world um, and all of a sudden the club had bought Josh Cromfeld in as well so so what does that A say to a young person who's trying to get into the team where it says that you're not very good, mate, so we're going to get another better world-class flanker that you can't get past as well. So, you know, it pushed me harder. It motivated me to want to stay and get in the team because I had the choice to leave. But um, I suppose what it really made me realise was best all-black open side in the world, best England open side in the world, and me. And I've been trying to be nil back for three years. It's not worked. I see Josh Cromfield come in and... He is social animal, likes a drink, you know, trains really hard, super fit, but doesn't mind going out and having a burger, doesn't mind. You know, he approaches life totally differently to Neil, but he's still the best at what he does. And I'm like, all of a sudden it was like an epiphany. I was like, oh, right, okay. So I don't have to be the, you know, the, the exact copy of Neil Back or Josh Cornfield, I just have to be the best version of me. And as soon as I realized that, I totally chilled out and relaxed. And and that moment, that was like the, the moment that sort of defined who I was then going to be. I took the opportunity and, and, and my career progressed. Josh being there made me realize that there was not, it was not about fitting a box. It was about being you and understanding what being the best version of you is. It's interesting because people often talk about, oh, he's the next Neil Back or he's the next this. And you often hear players saying, no, I'm not the next man. Yeah, I'm yeah. the first Lewis Moody. Yeah. And it always sounds slightly naff, doesn't it? Does, it? Yeah, but actually yeah, there yeah. is 
there is something really important in that, isn't there? Which is that you just have to be you and you can't try and copy anyone else's way of doing yeah. things. And even going all the way back to school life about these people who are being held up to you as the best student or yeah. the best this. Yeah. It's quite a dangerous gig, isn't it? As a parent saying you need to be like this or you need to be like that, or even thinking they need to be like you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and actually just allowing them to sort of just find their own feet in that and, and saying that, look, you know, these are different people and different styles, but have a look at them like you do with Neil Back. It wasn't harmful in the sense of interesting to see how one works, but finding your own path there. And there will always be something positive from Neil Back or Josh Christ. There's always be something that you can take that will help you, right? But it's just, you, you hit the nail on the head, it's just not, you don't have to be like someone else you you can look at the best bits of them and, and take go, that. Yeah, yeah yeah and then yeah. figure out how it works for you yeah. yeah i get that yeah it was it was an epiphany when i realized it but you spend a couple of years batting like headbutting the wall essentially why isn't it working why can't i weigh my food you know why can't i fold my tops correctly oh god I'm in your case it. i'm actually thinking you probably did headbutt the wall yeah 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 100 percent. i yeah i yeah so, so tell us what, what you do now, Lewis. So when I retired in 2012 from playing shoulder injury, finally put pay to me running around, I met a young lad called Joss Rowley-Stark, who whose dad sent a letter to the house here. But this one was just saying, look, I've got a son, um, he's got a rare form of cancer, is there anything you could do to support him? He's trying to raise money for his, his mates going on tour to South Africa. I was like, oh, I'm retired, I've got time on my hands now. So I went up to Sheffield. Jumped on a train, met Graham, his dad. Went to the session, met Joss, took a training session and, and gave him a load of kit to, to raise, help raise money for the for the tour. And over the next what, year and a half, just kept in touch with those guys. And um, and I got another call off Graham saying, mate, look, Joss is really struggling at the minute. Can you, can you do anything to sort of alleviate the monotony of medical hospitals and being ill, essentially? And Leo, his brother, needs support because we're spending all the time with, with Joss. Anyway, so took him, I took him to Twickenham. We watched, I watched a game that I thought we'd win, so we went and watched the Welsh game. And uh, <laughs> neither of you are Welsh, are you? And, uh, and we did win, thankfully. And they sat in the stand and we had all the hospitality. I then took you know, all the connections, thankfully, having been recently retired, you know, went down into the change room, met all the players in the change room post-game, you know, for 15-year-old and a 14-year-old. And then uh, afterward, Graham, Joss's dad, called and said, mate, look, perfect boys have, you know, it's put a real smile on their faces, you know, got signed memorabilia photos everywhere, you know, Manu Tuolangi and all the England players. And it was exactly what they needed. Totally distracted them from all the rubbish that they're having to deal with in their lives at the minute. And at the end of the phone call, just said, like, I'm really sorry, but Joss lost his, lost his battle with uh with cancer and 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 every time i tell that story it still makes me emotional because he was he was such a, a great kid such a fun loving kid sporty had the you know the the world at his feet but all he cared about was supporting his mates to go on tour even though he was dealing with this like rare form of cancer and um so so off the back of it me and annie decided that we would put all our charitable attention into a foundation and and that was supporting young families with brain tumors and uh that you know we we set that up in i think ultimately it launched in 2014 and, and we've been doing that ever since and i know this is we're talking about teenagers here but so for me as a 32 year old my sense of purpose had disappeared because i'd retired as a rugby player and it was only a couple of years ago that i really realized this in hindsight was that meeting joss and i got a letter from graham saying can you help us asking for help of me those two helped me more than 
you know, I, I ever could have helped them because they suddenly they, they replaced my purpose. My purpose was now supporting, you know, doing something in Joss's, Joss's memory. And it's, it, it's interesting how your purpose was, was about giving and about looking out and that you weren't, you know, you didn't go into that place of, well, what about me? I've been mm. England rugby captain. Actually, you moved into a posture of, of giving and mm. helping and supporting and that's really laudable. Really well, there, there wasn't, I was certainly not a plan. It wasn't like, oh, okay, this is great. Let's go do it. It was, again, I'm impulsive. I, I'm emotional. I'm reactionary. I need, as, a, as an individual, I was loyal and very protective as a player, which is why I ended up getting a bit of bother sometimes with fights on the pitch. But um, but, um. but that's another story. <laughs> that's another story. But so so for me, it was just, it was a natural process. I had an emotional connection with an individual that, um, Joss that, that needs support and, and there was nothing ultimately that I was ever going to be able to do that would help him but it, it just made me realise that there's there's more to life you know than than chasing certain things you know I, I got very absorbed at one stage in my career with having a bigger house a bigger car uh, being on the biggest billboard and all that rubbish that that is irrelevant but became important to me because everyone told me it was important you know agents and coaches and stuff but ultimately i do now what i enjoy and what i love and it gives me the most satisfaction and it allows me to spend time with my kids it's interesting you told two stories about learning from teenagers a boy standing up in a group talking about his depression and then this this boy with his brain tumor who taught you a lot and helped you a lot as you say and i think sometimes we and obviously this podcast is really all about parents seeking to help teenagers but actually some of the best things that we can do are to listen and learn from them aren't they and actually to not think it's a one-way yeah this relationship it's a two-way thing and actually sometimes they're teaching us things about ourselves as well so so often i cannot reiterate how that rings true to me you know as a parent just looking at the stuff i did as a younger man as a young parent and just wincing i thought oh what and we talked about having to apologise to my kids on, you know, on numerous occasions where I just got it, you know, totally wrong. My youngest We've child, <laughs> my youngest child, Ethan, it, you know, is I, I can look back and go, I got it completely wrong because I thought you could parent both kids the same. I thought my eldest child, who was very responsive to me, if there was something he'd done wrong and I needed to address it and all those sorts of things. And, and it was very easy, really, was with Ethan. <laughs> I suddenly met like a force of nature. I was like, uh, so I'd try and discipline him the same way or talk to him the same way and he would just be having none of it and, yeah. and his temper would increase. And Was it like parenting yourself? Maybe, yeah, maybe <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. I, I think we don't often reflect on that enough, do we? But it made me really aware that, you know, again, we don't fit into one box, right? But also, so parenting doesn't fit into one box. Just because it works for one doesn't mean it works for another. And with him, it made me empathize with the fact that some children need real love and actually because they've done something wrong if you criticize them more it's going to make them more angry and more frustrated and I had no idea about this until you know my wife who's brilliant again this sort of stuff you know did some research into it and actually kids fears and anxieties come out in you know frustration and anger and by um, mischievousness or naughtiness and all that sort of stuff and actually all they really crave is your attention and your love more than being criticized or told off or told what to do and and once i realized that and and when he started having wobblers or tantrums that that was related to other anxieties and other fears and all i needed to do was take a step back and go oh, okay mate look tickle him or cuddle him or 
and and everything it changed and it was like the mood, everything relaxed and because I think we sometimes amplify our f- stresses and frustrations. Oh, sorry, they're amplified. Our stresses and frustrations, or mine, I'll say mine because I'm talking about me, amplified by someone else's stresses. So if my child's kicking off, I'm getting more stressed, then I'm reacting worse, and then oh my god, it's gonna like World War Three all of a sudden, and the doors are slamming. And I look back in some of the stuff, you know, the parenting that I did uh, as a younger younger parent. Oh, it's just it awful. But think, thankfully, yeah, I'm getting better. I think we've all been there. Our, our youngsters just learned how to say, "I'm just feeling really grumpy." Yeah. And actually, even being able to just say those words and communicate them is a really positive thing, isn't it? And yeah. actually, sometimes when I've apologised, it's just been, "I'm sorry, I'm in a really grumpy mood, and I just yeah. overreacted there." And I think sometimes modelling that gives them the permission to say the same thing, doesn't it? Just say, you know what, I don't know why I'm stressed, but I am stressed. Hundred percent. You know, yeah. and I think allowing that in a family setting, allowing to give them the language to say, I'm just feeling grumpy, and that's yeah. allowed, yeah. or I'm angry, and that's allowed, or I'm feeling a bit anxious, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, rather than just sort of trying to kind of brush it under the brush carpet, it under the carpet yeah. and and just um, allow them to sometimes often the best thing for him is to just go off and be on his own for a bit. Yeah. And then you can go up and sort of tickle him and stuff. But if you try and do yeah. it while he's in the ground, yeah, yeah, no, you're, and also I think expressing that uh, emotion and frustration because uh, I remember, you know turning the kids off for like smashing something or you know when they've got really frustrated actually trying to have a physical outlet then if we i was repressing that emotion so it's making them more frustrated so as you said you know letting them go upstairs and blow off steam and and if he needs to batter you know the the teddies or the sofa or the or something then fine uh I know, and they don't always need to batter something. Do no, they? true. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that, that's just my experience. My my experience. But um, but yeah, just just to allow that expressiveness and not not try and stop it or oppress it. Actually, they need to. They need that emotional outlet. Yeah. So you talked a lot about being an emotional person, and actually, sometimes to get to where you need to be, you have to express the emotion before you can even begin to deal with it, can't you? Hundred percent. So you have your 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 brain tumor. Trust and the Lewis Moody Foundation, but you also have your Mad Dog Coaching yes. Academy. Yeah. Academy. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So we set up uh, Mad Dog. Well, it's Mad Dog Sport actually, but uh, the the programs that we have in the school at the minute are Mad Dog Rugby. So it was essentially, I I saw how beneficial rugby was to me, as I think is evident from what we've spoken about today, and I really wanted to help other kids benefit in the same way so um we set up the program in 2015 with a vision to um well so as i said initially it was okay how can i use sport to to help young people to keep them engaged to keep them motivated to inspire them to give them an outlet to all this sort of stuff what it what it eventually became was how can we use sport to keep kids engaged in education so sixth form education and and that's what we set up so we set up a uh, a rugby program that we put into state schools um, that is about supporting a child through school uh, using rugby as a tool, and that's you know so we could do we could we could take out the rugby bit and we could put football in there we could put cricket in there, but rugby is what I know so it's our starting point and maybe we'll get to that in the years to come I don't know but it sounds like you're trying to create that place of belonging that we were talking yeah, about a hundred percent is about that place of family and that sort of safe space through sick form life that's yeah. going to run alongside. 
their education as it were and keep them engaged in both in a way that's exactly it it is about using the sport using rugby to keep them engaged in in schoolwork the other amazing opportunity that we have is is it allows kids that sometimes otherwise wouldn't have been kept in school because they didn't get the grades to stay and achieve because all the kids that have stayed in sorry the the vast majority i would say 98 percent of the kids that have other that were otherwise not going to be in school because of their grades stayed got all their btechs and a levels and then we're in a better position to progress you know beyond school you know one of the boys was even excluded but because of the program was allowed to come back in he was given a second chance because they deemed what happened you know there was an area of doubt over it and and the character that he was could benefit from the program you know he smashed all of his a levels um you know his 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 attendance his attainment his attitude at school you know was was transformed and that was through the work of the coaches and again you talk about creating a place of belonging and a safe place where you know, they're not going to be criticised. And the other thing, a place where they're achieving something. And when we yeah. achieve something, we just, we do feel better about ourselves. So true. Well, there's there's some stat, isn't there, about, you know, how much praise there should be over criticism. That's something like 90% and 10%, isn't it? Whereas how often do we do we get that scale completely wrong, you know? I, I was commenting to you in your office as well about sort of some, a lot of the memorabilia, which is not really self-focused. There's all sorts of, great sporting stories on the wall but I said to you at the beginning it strikes me there's quite a lot of outsider stories here and actually the one you've described about the boy being excluded you kind of have almost like that empathy for the the outsider you like that story about bringing people back in and, and that seems to be part of what you're doing as well yeah I'd not really thought about that until you came in and, and drew my attention to it today <laughs> they were just pictures on the wall that I've collected over the years and it's only when you talk about it that you realize there becomes themes right but yeah I, I just love seeing people achieve I really thrive of seeing people achieve because I've been so lucky in my career to have done so much and had so much success with so many brilliant teams I want other people to to sort of experience it as well and for some people that comes quite naturally annoyingly doesn't it mm. but for other people it's a lot more of a struggle and in a way you've outlined some of your own struggles in getting that and the flip side I guess is to try and turn that out was like James said and actually find other people to do that for you but I, I love that. I think you're an inspiration in that. Yeah. You know that that actually to have got to the top and to be so sort of unfull of yourself. But it's all about the next generation. It's about helping people to fulfil their potential, which I think is just awesome. Well, that's kind. Listen, it's been fantastic talking to you this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Really pleasure. Appreciate it. The Jameses. It has been a real pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank thanks you. for coming over. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Listening to Talking Teenagers. Music has been by Rue Paynes. Editing by George Purvis and James Certin. For more information about I Can and I Am Charity, who provide presentations and resources and help build self confidence in young people, visit their website at ICanIAm.com. Be a soul.